Hello and welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. Our mission here is to offer hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. What follows is the audio from selected videos posted on Recovering from Religion's YouTube channel. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Let me introduce Dave. Dave and I are personal friends. We've been friends for over four years now. We, we met through a mutual friend um, from uh, Nashville. But Dave's background, he was a formal, former uh, conservative evangelical pastor and a church leader for nearly 40 years. And about 10 years ago, he walked away from his faith because he allowed himself to start uh, asking those tough questions. And that was a really difficult journey for him and it cost him a lot. He ended up losing his marriage and relationships with his uh, adult children. And he was getting to a point of where he was learning to cope with this and realizing it's up to, to me to write my own story of how I'm going to live my life. And he started having this model of seizing the moments and living his best life. And then about well, a year ago, last February, he was diagnosed with ALS, which is a, a terminal disease. And shortly after that, he started on a world tour of going on, having talks about death. And he's calling it living at, or dying out loud. And, and that's what he's here tonight to talk us, to us about, about how we can face death and without the fear of hell or a promise of a heaven. So Dave, we want to welcome you here tonight. Um, we're so excited uh, um, to have you. And, and for folks, if you want to get more of D uh, Dave's background, of his personal story, of his journey coming out and stuff, uh, there's, there's a lot of interviews that he's had. You can find these on his, on his website. Um, just Google Dave Warnock, Dying Out Loud, and, and his, his page will come up. Yeah, I'll go ahead and post the link in the uh, chat. For yeah, that's, yeah, good idea. Well, Dave, welcome. Welcome to um, RFRX, and um, it's really, really glad to hear, have you here today. Thank you. Yeah. How are you doing today? Good. Good, good. Good, good to be um, here. All these beautiful faces from all around the world. We have got folks from the UK, from uh, uh, Australia, and like you said, from all around the world. It's, it's really, really cool to see how many people show up for these. Mm -hmm. Um, so the meeting format's going to be like, we are going to have a discussion for about an hour. And then um, while we're discussing things, uh, there will be some questions that the folks will have and they'll type them in the chat. So folks, if you've got a question uh, for Dave that comes up while we're talking, type it into the chat. Uh, we will uh, ask him during the Q&A session um, after the discussion, uh, those questions. And then once the Q&A session is over, we'll have a little bit of a social hangout. So, um, folks, uh, again, if you've got questions, put them into the chat. So, Dave, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. You kind of, uh, Todd spoke a little bit about it. You were a um, evangelical for 40 years, a pastor, a bigwig in the, um, uh, Baptist, uh, the evangelical community, and then something happened, and uh, you started questioning your faith. Yeah, I wasn't a big wig. I was a little wig. I never, um, never was like the, the I, I honestly, I never was a senior pastor of a church. I was always an associate on staff doing, um, 
doing all the stuff the senior pastor didn't want to do. That's what associates do. Um, but I did a lot of preaching and teaching and, and baptizing and marrying and burying and all the things that pastors do. And then part of my life, I was not on staff and I was just doing um, regular work. But yeah, it was almost 40 years, uh, the better part of 30, three and a half decades from the age of 18 when I got swept up in the Jesus movement and became a Jesus freak and did street preaching and coffee house ministry. And, and that went through my 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, um, married in the faith, raised three kids, taught them all to believe. They all got married to Christian spouses and went off to do their own Christian homes. And then about 10 years ago, I just ran out of reasons to believe. I, I, I like to say I, I, I got exhausted making excuses for God's poor behavior. And it just wore me out over a period of time. And I just finally had to let it go because it, it no longer meshed with what I considered to be a moral, uh, rational view of how the world works. And trying to maintain a belief in God and, and mesh that with how the world works can, continued to, to defy logic. And so I had to let it go. If I was going to be honest with myself and authentic, I was going to have to let my ideas about God uh, go away. And they did. And that was in uh, about 2010. It was a process of about a year and a half of reflection and reading and discovery and um, uh, really analyzing what I believed and why I believed it all these years. And finally, coming to the conclusion that I no longer, that I, that I, it was a lie. I was fooled. I was, um, I'd spent the better part of my life believing something that wasn't true. Yeah. And it was, it was traumatic. Um, it was a, a very, I know this, what you guys deal with every day with RFR. And, um, back in that day, I didn't know of any groups like this. Daryl, you hadn't started it yet. So, you know, I was on my own and, um, what I did find was the clergy project. And um, I know you guys have been connected with them. Daryl and I have talked about that and, and uh, secular therapy project that they use. Um, so I found some people in that and be slowly began to find my new people, my new tribe, people who no longer believed. And, and as Todd mentioned, we, we've got a group in Nashville that we began to get to know over the last four or five years. And, we have our own support group, if you will. I know you mentioned that, Eric. It never was a formal RFR support group, but it functioned in much the same way. All of us came out of, even, most of us, evangelicalism. Some maybe more mainline denominations, but evangelicalism, charismatic, Pentecostal, Baptist, Nazarene, whatever. Um, that, that was the, the water I swam in, and that's what I came out of, and, and that's what I have the most problem with. So when I do my talks and stuff, I'm pretty, pretty hard on that particular strain of Christianity because I see it as the one that's doing the most damage. Now, this wasn't, um, uh, you, you talked about it was fairly traumatic and it wasn't just mentally traumatic for you. Um, you had, a, there was a, a lot of, uh, um, you were basically kicked out of your community. You weren't allowed yeah. to, and, and your friends and your family turned your back, turned their backs on you. Yeah, some did, some didn't. I've got three kids, two daughters and a son. My older daughters and their husbands pretty much shunned me and my wife. I was married at the time. My wife remained a believer. Um, a lot of my friends um, 
abandoned me. Uh, didn't want, didn't, it's not like they said, we shun you, you're dead to us. That wasn't formal. It was just, they just kind of disappeared. And I likened it to, they just didn't know what to do with me because I remained very um, connected to anyone who wanted to be connected with me. I didn't go around cutting people out of my life. I don't do life that way. I, I live by a standard that says, if you want to do life with me and you can accept me for who I am and not try to change me, um, then we're fine. But I am who I am. And if you're not okay with that, that's not my problem. It's yours. And I'm not going to let you make it mine. And so a lot of those friends just went away. And my, da my daughters, now they did practice more of a formal shunning where they had meetings with us and they said, we can't be in your life until you repent and return to God. Their view was that I was in rebellion against God or running from him or mad at him or something. Um, and they couldn't share life with me as long as I was in that condition. And that was almost 10 years ago and it remains much the same to this day. Yeah. I, um, I had something similar, or not religious based, but, um, uh, for, for my own mental health, I had to sort of turn away from my own father and my own brother. Um, and it sounds like something similar, you had to do something similar. You know what it's like to journey out of a once cherished belief. Maybe you were devoutly religious, escaped a cult, or perhaps you simply navigated out of some very difficult days. And now you'd like to help someone else do the same. Recovering from Religion is a wonderful support organization for people who feel confused, troubled, and alone as they come to grips with the possibility that they no longer hold a religious belief or that they risk losing everything if they're honest with themselves and others about their journeys. These people need our help, and Recovering from Religion needs yours. RFR is seeking volunteers. Perhaps you're formerly religious, or you have a specific skill set like speaking a foreign language. Maybe you're just a good listening ear. The RFR Volunteer Training Program will help you translate those abilities into critical assistance, encouragement, and support for the men, women, and youth who contact RFR every day from all over the world. You can relate. You can understand. And you can make their journeys easier. Join the team at Recovering From Religion and remind someone else that they are not alone and someone is here to help. To find out more, click the Volunteer tab at recoveringfromreligion.org. Yeah, I mean, you, you have to decide if people are toxic in your life and if they're dragging you down or pulling and I understand some of some of you may have had to do make make those kind of decisions my <clears throat> my emotional makeup was such that I it didn't bother me that people now now I won't I was sad and depressed for, for the better part of five or six years not depressed in a clinical sense I was still functioning and living but my life was a lot much consumed by my what I considered to be the loss of my daughter's and it really, it really knocked me. It, it kept me living as though there was a dark cloud hovered above me. I was living with a, with a wife who we were disconnected in every way that matters. We were just sharing space together, and it wasn't a real marriage. It wasn't a real life. And so I was very unhappy. My only 
point of happiness during those years was my connection with my ex-Christian friends. And um, it wasn't just our, our monthly meetups. It was just the connection of life that we shared and getting to know them and, and connecting in a way that was very uh, based to my uh, existence, if you will. So, yeah, those were some tough times, to be sure. Those are are so tough. And, and losing relationships like that is can be so powerful and life-changing in, in our lives. You and I met right after you came off the beach. Um, you went there to kind of reboot, to reset things. And you came away with this model of carpe the fucking diem. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? What does that mean? And what made you focus on that? Well, carpe the fucking diem is Greek for seize the fucking day. So I don't know what the Greek word for fucking is, but it's, sure, it's wonderful. Um, I, I did. I, I went to the beach. I was still married, and I went to the beach and worked from, from a condo on the beach for two and a half months. And I just took that time to assess my life. I was whatever I was. I was 61 years old, and I didn't know. You know, I didn't know how much life I had left of, of vital life. I figured, you know, I was on the back end of, the th- of things. And this was pre-ALS, so, you know, this was just normal life. And I decided to end the marriage, and I really um, needed to reboot everything and to start over, if you will. And, and to, the, to think of starting over at 61 is just ca- kind of traumatic in itself. Most people are winding down, and here I was thinking, okay, I'm just going to I'm just going to kick this thing up and, and go. And Carpe the Fucking Diem was a mantra that I kind of seized in that, in that day. And I began to, I, I developed a mindset of I'm going to make the most of every bit of life that I have left. And I'm going to live it on my terms. I'm going to write my story. What I realized, what I, I was letting other people write my story, my daughters, my ex-wife, my community that I'd lost. I was letting them dictate how the story flowed out of me. And um, hey, Elliot, um, and I was, I was uh, not being true and authentic to myself. That's Gail says when I was saying hi to him, I saw him. Um, anyway, I'm sorry, I just, I, I, I'm just like a puppy. I looked around everywhere. Um, <laughs> but I, I realized that I was going to have to seize control of my life. And, and in, in essence, that's what I did. I, I somehow managed, and I don't have any, you know, formal tools for this, but during that time, I also shifted my mindset to where I realized I was never going to be able to change my daughter's behavior toward me, and I was going to have to be okay with that, and I was going to have to draw some lines and say, I'm not going to let that dictate the quality of my life, the quality of my days, the quality of my moments. Another phrase I began to live by or began to reflect more on was, a plaque that someone gave me and it said, we do not remember days, we remember moments. Mm. And I started talking then, even then about that life is nothing more than a collection of moments. It's not some big plan that all fits together. And God, by the way, if you don't know this yet, God does not have a wonderful plan for your life. I know you, some of you were told that it's a lie. Um, So you've got to make the moments. You've got to make your life happen. If you're not happy with the story that's being written, it's on you to change it. And so those are things I started reflecting on and changes I made. And I, come, I came away from there 
truly a different person. And I began, I got an apartment in Nashville, I got divorced, and I just began to live my best life. I consider it some of the best years that I've ever lived. I mean, I was so happy and so living my honest, authentic life. And that's the best any of us can hope for. And, and I was witness to that. Um, we would go out, we would uh, hang out together and get in with our groups of our buddies and friends and stuff. And, and we really enjoyed a lot of things. Then you were starting to notice things that like, I think the first thing was when you were trying to bowl, go bowling and you couldn't hang on to the bowling ball and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, talk a little bit about your discovery of AL, ALS and, and then that meeting you had with the doctor when he told you that this is yeah. well, what's going on. Well, I, I started having symptoms and, and it's one of those things. ALS is more commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. It's a, a motor neuron disease. If you're in England, it's called a motor neuron disease, different things around the world. But it's essentially your muscles you lose strength in your muscles and they quit working and different parts of your body quit working over time. And sometimes it goes fast, sometimes it goes slow. But I started having, I was working in the insurance business and I started having trouble writing certain words and letters. That was the earliest, earliest symptoms and, and they were well back into the spring of 2017, uh, 2018. Um, and, and I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe I'm just getting soft or carpal tunnel syndrome or whatever. And you just ignore it and move on. And more and more, I had trouble with different uh, dexterity with my hands. I couldn't open certain things, and buttoning buttons became challenging. And it was slowly becoming more difficult to do simple tasks with my hands. And then when I was bowling one time, I realized I could not grip the bowling ball with my fingers. I had to kind of cradle it and shove it down the aisle. And, and then a few months later, I was trying to golf, and I couldn't grip a golf club. I'd played golf my whole life. Those were um, singular moments that made me think, okay, something's really wrong here. It's not just I'm getting soft and weak. It's just something's wrong. Things aren't working. So I waited till the beginning of 2019, last year, to go to the doctor because I knew that uh, if I went to see one doctor, they would refer me to a specialist. And because of copays and deductibles, I thought, well, let's get that all in one calendar year. Um, <laughs> so that's what I did in January of 2019. I began to see a series of doctors and have a series of tests run on me. And then on February 26th of last year, I was at Vanderbilt in Nashville, just really literally a few blocks from my apartment. And a neurologist ran some tests on me, and I asked him if this was a conclusive test. It's called an EMG. And because um, they had done CAT scans and they couldn't find anything wrong, so they kept eliminating other things and we were trying to narrow it down to what it could be and I, I knew that ALS was on the table it was an option I'd done some googling um, and I just asked him if, if it's you know are the results immediate are they conclusive and he said yes yes they are so I said are you going to tell me what it is he said if you want me to I will I said yeah I don't want you to, to soft sell it to me I just want to know the truth and so when he was done he looked at me and I said is it ALS and he said yes it is and then um, that was it. And he said, um, there's the elevator down the hall to the left. Wow. And that's where my life changed again. Yeah. So what was your life like? How did your view of death sort of change since the diagnosis? It didn't. Um, my view of death changed when I became an atheist. Mm. Um, 
when, when I let go of Christianity, I let go of the ideas of eternal life and, and afterlife and heaven and hell and, and those kinds of, I'd, I'd kind of let go of hell a few years before that. It, it's a horrendous concept to begin with. And, and I, I became increasingly difficult. It became increasingly difficult for me to embrace that concept as a Christian even. So I secretly had let that go. Um, but the diagnosis simply changed my the velocity with which I was carpeing the fucking diem. And in other words, I was cruising on the highway at, at 60 and then I then I mashed the accelerator down like I was on the Autobahn in Germany and and took it up to ninety. Mm. And I, I immediately thought, okay, I'm gonna have to really soak the everything I can out of this life because it just got a lot shorter. And mm. and so it, it it didn't change my fundamental view of life and death. It just changed the way I was uh, living my life. I retired from working. I just, I, you know, the diagnosis they give you is on average three to five years. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Daryl, I was looking at your video today and you said something like, what do you want to be doing five years from now? How do you want to be thinking five years from now? And I thought, I probably won't be here five years from now. Wow. And those, those are sobering moments. Yeah, I've got a, um, uh, I, I had a friend who was diagnosed with ALS and um, within six months he was in a wheelchair and within a year he had passed away. Yeah, you um, told me that. Yeah, and uh, that, that was surprisingly quick to me. Um, That's on the quick end of the spectrum. Mine's, mine's moving on the slow end of the spectrum, so I can thank Jesus Christ for that because of the thoughts and prayers I've gotten from around the country. What what are what what are some of the things that people are saying to you, especially the Christians that you brought this up? I mean, how how are they uh, reacting to well, this? Well, the Christians haven't known what to do with it. They've been largely silent. Um, uh, my atheist friends have embraced it and and have jumped into it with me and have have been right there uh, loving me and 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 caring for me. My Christian friends and family have been largely silent because I don't think they know what to do with it. Um, I've seen, and this is what I talk about a lot in my Dying Out Loud tour, is the, the difference in the, in the reactions from Christians and non-Christians. Christians are strangely a little more afraid of death than non-Christians are, which seems very odd to me, and in really? denial of it. So I think rather than, than talk to me about these things, their atheist friend or son or brother or dad, their atheist person who's dying with a fatal illness apart from God, they don't know what to do with that. And they certainly don't know what, how to talk to me about it. So they just stay quiet. I have gotten a few reactions from former church members and things like that. Um, the, the, the most notable one was um, a, a former church member of mine back from back in Arkansas days uh, had reached out to me after seeing my stuff online. I'm quite public now. Um, with my stuff a lot more so than I was before ALS because why not? I'm all out of fucks. Um, but he found me and he reached out and sent me a friend request and started chatting with me and talking about his missionary dad and his life and so on and so forth. And he was just kind of inching his way into the conversation. I obviously knew I wasn't a Christian anymore. He'd seen my stuff online. So we got into a conversation and a chat one day and he said something like, I, I said something like, I don't, you know, you know, I don't believe that stuff, Joel. 
And he said, yeah, I, it troubles me, Dave, because you used to lead people toward God, and now you're leading people away from God. Mm -hmm. And if, if I was Jesus, I would have you die a lot sooner. Mm -hmm. And then he wow. ended the conversation, but, but Jesus <laughs> loves you, and so do I. And and irony of ironies, and I don't. This is I'm, I'm not. I'm just stating. I just heard from another former church friend who went to that same church a few weeks ago, and this guy has just recently died. They mm. sent me that message. Wow. Hand wow. to God. I don't know. No, I'm just. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so um, tell us about. Uh dying out loud what's what what's the concept behind it what's uh what's the mission there well shortly after i saw marie on here my assistant marie i don't know my manager um marie lepage wave your hand if she's there um anyway she's um one of our friends from our online community that i began to know in person a few years ago and um she was with a bunch of us in nashville shortly after the diagnosis i was packing up my apartment and moving out, moving in with friends just to make sure I had help if I needed it, that sort of thing. Because I, I radically changed my life after the diagnosis. I got rid of stuff I, during, well, people were there that day and I said, anything you want, just take it because I'm not going to need it. I'm, I'm going to be traveling and living light, so I don't need all this stuff. So that was one of the things that you experienced is just like, why do I have all this material? Yeah, yeah. I, I, my decision upon diagnosis was, was, pretty extreme because I didn't know if I had a year like your friend Eric or five years or whatever but I, I, I knew damn well I wasn't going to live it just existing I wasn't just going to slow down and, and sit on a couch and watch TV and watch my my body shrivel up I wasn't going to do that I was going to travel I was going to spend time with people I was going to go see friends I hadn't seen in a long time I was going to see places in the world that I could see I was just going to do whatever I could do until I couldn't do it anymore and then I was okay with turning out the lights. Um, but after that, we were there and, Mar and Marie um, does a lot of virtual assistant work. And she said, would you like to start talking about some things that are important to you? Life and death and Christianity and atheism and how we look at death as an atheist and, and how you looked at it before as a Christian. And so she started booking me on these podcasts. She started reaching out uh, to podcasts and YouTube shows and started just saying, hey, would you, and nobody knew who I was. I was just a dude, you know, I wasn't a big deal in, in the atheist community and hadn't been on the speaking circuit as an ex-pastor, none of that bullshit. I was just living my life. And so anyway, one thing led to another and we started this thing. We put a name to it, Dying Out Loud, and it organically became a thing and people started reaching out to us and booking us at their secular communities and oasis and Sunday assemblies and and we started traveling all over the country well all over the world uh, literally and I started hearing from people all over the world that would be on that would see me on these shows and and it we you know got t-shirts and WWDD bracelets and it just became a a thing that was like a runaway freight train and I started w realizing that people want to talk about this stuff huh WWDD, what, what would Dave do? Is that the bracelets that you're getting? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm like, I'm like Jesus. <laughs> no. What happened is this is another one of those organic things that happened. We were at our meetup 
a, a few weeks after the diagnosis and everybody was very emotional. Everybody was processing this news and it was tough on all of us. A lot of tears, a lot of emotion. And one of the women there makes bracelets as a hobby and sells them on eBay or whatever. <laughs> and so she was telling how during the week she'd been frustrated with something and was, was anxious and, and angry and frustrated and, and stopped and thought, wait a minute, Dave wouldn't act like this. He's got all these things going on and he wouldn't let a little thing like this get to him. And someone across the room said, yeah, what would Dave do? And then someone said, yeah, WWDD. Hmm. And, and that was the WWDD bracelets was born that night. And she started making them and we put them on the website and the Facebook page. And people started ordering them. And I got a picture a few weeks later from a guy in Paris, France, with a WWDD bracelet on and saying, I'm Carpe the fucking Diem over here, Dave. And it was <laughs> just nice. a phenomenal experience to feel like what I'm talking about, what I'm going through, is somehow making a difference in people's lives. Just a, And all, all that WWDD means is stop a minute, breathe in, what are you doing? How are you feeling? How's your day going? How are your moments? Are you making the most of them? Are you seizing the day? It's just a little reminder. That's all. I'm not trying to start a movement. But it sounds like you already have the Carpe the <laughs> movement. Well, I'm not yes. trying to. That's the point. <laughs> have you uh, got any pushback from this, uh, this type of um, talking out and uh, about Well, that? no, you know, I think... I, a little criticism. Anytime you expose yourself, you're going to get critics. But most people have been very – here's the deal. I've got a little – I started to say Trump card, but I can't even say that word out loud. Um, <laughs> most people aren't going to mess with a guy who's dying. So if they have criticism, they're largely silent, and they're staying away, and they're just mumbling to themselves or whatever. So I haven't gotten a lot of in-your-face, who do you think you are, what are you talking about criticism – because I don't think they want to kick a man while he's down. I think most people are kinder than that. So I haven't gotten a lot of negative feedback, honestly. Got it. That, that, that's good. So what, what is your main message that, that you're telling the people? Um, what, do you have like a mission statement or something? Yeah. Yeah. No, this is so, I mean, it's, you got to remember none of this, we didn't sit in the room with a marketing team and plan all this out. This just, this shit just happened. I mean, a classic example is one day I got a message from a guy in Oregon, Brian. Uh, we're going to meet. We were planning to meet this month when I was supposed to be out there before everything got canceled. But he's dealing with stage four cancer. And I got this heartfelt message from him one day. And he said, I saw you on a, a show. I don't know, maybe Atheist Experience or some show. And he, he said, I really appreciate what you're talking about. You're really inspiring to, to me. I'm struggling with stage four cancer and you talking about living life to the fullest and grabbing the moments has really captured my attention. And I'm really going to make an effort to do that better and to get out of my funk. And, and he said, and he even went online and ordered one of your shirts and he sent a picture of a WWDD t-shirt on that said, what would Dave do? And I sent a Maria message and I said, do we have shirts? We don't have shirts. <laughs> and he had gotten online. And funny, as strange as it may seem, there must be another Dave out there somewhere in the universe. And he had gotten online and found these T-shirts he thought were mine. And, <laughs> oh, so, wow. and so I said, well, we should have T-shirts. So we started this whole merch store. 
and people started buying T-shirts with, I've got one on here. It's an image that a, an artist in England made from a picture that we sent him, and it became this thing. And so all of that is just um, people hearing my message. You asked me what my message is, and it's just simply that. Live your life. Live your best life. Take control of your life. Don't let negative circumstances uh, affect you adversely. And, and his message was one of dozens I've gotten from people all over the world dealing with all kinds of things. One lady was so deep into a depression that she said she hadn't left her house in a year and she couldn't walk across the room without the assistance of a cane. Mm-hmm. And somehow what I said resonated so much with her. She sent me a message and said, today I walked five miles and yes. I'm living life differently than wow. I ever have. And I want to thank you for that. That blows me away. But I love that. It's a simple message and, and it's just, I don't know. I, it, I never will get over it. It's amazing. And those, those, when you hear that feedback, that probably encourages you and motivates you to keep going. Yeah, um, it does. Great deal. That, that graphic on the t-shirt you just showed, there's a story behind that. Would you mind sharing that with everyone? And I think we have a picture of it, Eric, if you want to show that. Yeah. Um, well, there's a guy in England, uh, Gavin Bowyer, um, is an artist in England. And, and again, we were supposed to meet when I was over there in May. We're not, <laughs> everything got put on hold. <laughs> but he wanted, he said, I want to make a portrait of you. And he said, I want it to be something that kind of captures who you are and what you're going through. So I sent him a picture of, that I had taken of me sitting out on a patio one night smoking a cigar, which I love. Um, and, and this picture had the smoke coming up, covering up part of my face. And he took that picture and made this graphic from it. And, and it just blew us away because of what he was able to do artistically. But secondly, it kind of grabbed the idea that, that I mean, it's kind of graphic and some people don't like it because it's like, oh my God, your head's exploding. But it's kind of, it kind of grabs the image of my reality in that my body is disintegrating right before my eyes every yeah. day. Yeah. And that picture seemed to grab that image in such a beautiful way it became it just it, it grabbed all of our attention, and now it's on T-shirts people are wearing all over the world. And I like it that you're smoking your cigar while while you're disintegrating. You're still doing the things that I'm gonna, you love. That's probably life. one of the last things I'll do is have a cigar. <laughs> I got to quit smoking cigars. Fuck it, I'm done. <laughs> Man, so um, let's talk a little bit about death. For for me, this uh, we we, t- we uh, you and I talked about this uh, last week, but this is a tough and neat, uh, dare I say, triggering topic for me. Like when I start to think about death, I get emotional. Um, the tears start to well up in my my eyes, and um, intellectually, I feel like I got a hang of it, but emotionally, there's something going on there. What mm-hmm. what is it about you that it, you're not bothered by death, or you're not bothered by they're not being an afterlife. I don't know, man. I wish I had a real solid, good answer to give everyone. Um, I'm not a special guy in that regard. And I'm always a little bit hesitant to 
think I might be coming across with some kind of false bravado of I'm not afraid of death, you know, that kind of thing. Cause I really don't mean to do that. Um, I don't feel that way. I don't want to go. I, I love life. I love every minute of every day and I, I want to make the most of it. So I'm not in a hurry. I don't have a death wish. Um, but I just don't fear it in the sense that, um, that I don't, I don't know what there is to be afraid of. I've just kind of analyzed it from a practical standpoint and realized that it's not anything to fear. It's just the natural result of living. There's nothing on the other side of it that I'll be aware of. It's not like I'll wake up the next morning and go, Oh my God, I'm dead. I won't, you know, I won't be aware of anything. So the easy part is for me just to go to sleep. The hard part is for the people that I leave behind the ones that are there that care about me and that are no longer going to be able to enjoy um, my wonderful presence in their life. <laughs> um, so it's just something that I've, I've been able to dis disconnect. First of all, I'm, I'm kind of lucky in that I'm not a fearful person by nature. I, I don't know why that is. It just is. I, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm too simple minded to be afraid of things, but, I'm just not really. And, and so that has never been an issue for me. So the idea of dying now, what gets me emotional is realizing that I'm going to miss out on what's, what's going on without, I don't want to miss the party. I don't want to leave the party early. You know, I'm the guy that just soaks up everything in a party and I'm loving everyone there and I'm talking to everyone there and I'm very gregarious and, and personable. And I know this about myself. And so I'm, I'm the guy that's, that, that's going to be sad to, to turn out the lights and say, well, shit, I don't get to do this anymore. And I really wish I could. So that's, that's why I'm talking about maximizing our moments and getting the most out of life because it is the one shot we have. And it's not a trial run and it's not a pre pregame warmup. It's the real thing. It's the only thing we have. And if we're not making the most of it, why not? We're missing it. And let's, let's get on with it. And, and so the idea of, of it ending is what I hate. It's the ending itself is, is not that um, fearful for me. I think that's what, one of the things that Eric talked about, why he, he was hanging on so long onto the Christian faith because of that promise that this is not all there is, that there is more. And, uh, and as humans, we don't like to think, well, I'm just going to go to sleep and that's going to be it. There has to be a bigger reason a bigger purpose a bigger why yeah i think that's been sold to us by religion though i think that whole concept of there's an afterlife where we get to be with our uncles and aunts and parents and moms and dads and siblings and we can go on forever i mean if you break that down though that should horrify us i don't know anyone in my life i want to spend eternity with and i <laughs> i mean my god that's a long time people so uh, that whole idea of eternity in heaven with our loved ones, I think that's just a, a pipe dream that was sold us by religion. And what it does, I'm afraid, <coughs> excuse me, I'm losing my voice here. Um, what that does when we focus on an, the next life, it's going to cause us to minimize this life. And we're going to miss what's the here and now. Anytime we're looking forward to something around the corner, something next week, next year, it's going to cause us to devalue what we have here. It's, it's by default that's what's going to happen. 
you're absolutely focused yeah. there and you're not living in this moment. And that to me is a tragedy. And, and I call it the fetish for the afterlife that Christians have. It's that whole idea that we're not going to die. We're just going to pause and step into the next life. And therefore, I believe it causes them to fear death and to deny death more than us secular people do. Yeah, it gives them a reason why not to talk about death or to look at their own personal death. Mm -hmm. um, they can push it to the back of their mind. And, uh, and, and yeah. focus well, I on think it. probably people's fear, even, even as secular people, uh, if, if we've got a fear of death or hell that's lingering, it's probably there because of the uh, indoctrination we received when we were younger. Uh, the Bible even talks about the fear of death keeping us in bondage. And, and I believe it does. And, and, and if we, we can't, if we can't, uh, uh, Maury Schwartz said something that I love. He, he's the subject of the book Tuesdays with Maury. And mm -hmm. he died of ALS years ago. Uh, Mitch Album wrote a beautiful book about him. Um, he said, until you learn to die, you can't really learn to live. So until we make peace with our death and we make peace with this is what's coming, then we, once we do that, then we can get on living. We can get on about life. And we can set that over on the counter somewhere. Yep, that's coming. Now, mine is coming quicker than most of you, unless you're in an accident or something. Um, so I'm more aware of mine on a daily basis. And it allows me, it, it really is, I, I kind of have a gift that, that some of you don't have in that I'm able to, to see it. And, and it causes me to, by default to focus more on what I have right in front of me and not get caught up in the mundane and the trivial. So it, is that something that um, you feel kind of held you back before you seized the fucking day, was getting bogged down in the mundane and the trivial? I think we all do. I think it's life. Uh, life has a way of, of getting itself entangled around us and keeping us from doing the things we want to do or that we feel like are important or would value more. So. It, it's a constant struggle for us to detangle ourselves from the mundane and trivial and to try to focus on what really is important. And it's a struggle. I think it's a life struggle. Um, and, and I have the ability, I have the luxury of saying, no, I don't have to worry about that. Um, I mean, when I first got ALS, I thought I might not even live through, I, I didn't know how long I might have a couple of years. And my thought was then if, if Trump gets reelected, well, it's not my problem. I won't have to deal with it. <laughs> but now it looks like I'm going to be around for that. So I'm, I'm deathly afraid of it. <laughs> I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of four more years of Trump. Um, so what would you, what are some of the, the things that you've, if, if I were to sort of sit in your head and kind of observe, like wake up in the morning and observe the day, what would, what would that look like? What would be some tips or, or something that uh, you could suggest would be good for me to focus on the day? Well, I, I, I think we all have to find things that make life um, appealing, that make life good, fun, if you will, make us happy and fulfill us energize us um i think that's all of us that's on all of us that's the human condition if you will and um for me uh i'm energized by uh connection with people 
the Dying Out Loud mission that developed was a great uh, boost for me because it gave me something to focus on and to give my energy to. Um, when this all got shut down after the coronavirus, it was a real kick in the gut for me. I had, I had, my calendar was full through the first half of this year, traveling literally around the world. Um, and I had to shut all that down. And um, so I'm doing virtual meetings with some of the groups I was going to be speaking to and doing as much of this as I can, but it doesn't substitute for me the human connection. And that's yeah. what I find valuable. So when I get up in the day, um, what this quarantine has been really hard on me. Um, it, it, it's really shut me down emotionally in ways that I didn't expect. Um, because I'm such a people person and I draw energy from being with people. And now that I can't, I, I, I find myself withdrawing into myself. And I'm not that good a company. So um, that's been a problem. Um, but for me, getting up in the day, I, I, um, I have to find things that bring me joy, that bring me uh, comfort, energy, and push through the present situation to look forward. Like for me, I have to have something on the calendar. Mm. So I've booked a trip out in June. Just who knows? Maybe we'll get to travel in June. Maybe I'll get to go. If not, I have to reschedule it. But at least it's on the calendar. And for me, that is something that I need personally. I've got to have something that has got my attention rather than, I mean, my God, I don't even know if it's Tuesday, Monday, Thursday, Friday. I have no idea what day of the week it is anymore. Every day is a Saturday. Yep. So <laughs> all of us have to find that, Eric. I think it's, <laughs> like I said, I have the ability to focus on it in ways that some of you guys don't because you have to keep going and doing what you're doing because you're going to be doing it for years and years. I have a, a, a shorter window of time than you do. And so it allows me to focus on the present day a little easier, perhaps. Yeah. Raising families, there's bills to pay, you right. got a job obligation, and it's easy to get our eyes off the things that are important and, and concentrate where we're worried about being able to pay right. the electric bill or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I'd I thought I'd, I'd kick the bucket quicker, and I, I I quit paying parking tickets, and that caught up on me. So got, you know, I I, I thought I will never pay another parking ticket. Well, damn it, I've lived too long, so I got to pay them now. You put it to the man; you'll show them who's boss. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you don't recommend that, do you? No, <laughs> no. Well, we are we're starting to run out of time here a little bit. I I wanted to talk a little bit about your plans um talk a little bit about the final exit network yeah um what 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 is your plans towards the end of your life well there's a group uh that you you found todd i don't know how you found it but a year or so ago right not not too long after the diagnosis you you told me about this group final exit network it's a nonprofit, completely run by, by volunteers and um there's a, there's, I think Marie's got the link on our website now. Um, they yes. are, I, I learned about them and I connected with them. Um, they, they essentially, and I'm just going to use blunt terms, they help you end your life on your own terms in your own timing. It, it's not dependent upon any uh, state that you live in. There are no state laws. The reality is it's not against the law to take your own life. Um, I like to joke, what are they going to do, arrest you? 
Um, but, but you can't help someone do it. And so what they do is they connect you with a guide, an exit guide, um, and, and walk you through the steps you're going to need. Uh, legal, financial, uh, counseling, family things. Uh, everything's in order. There's, there's a lot of paperwork involved. You have to have a medical report that shows that you have a terminal illness and those kind of things. You can't just like, I'm having a bad day. I'm going to get out of here. Um, they won't help you do that. Um, but it's a great organization. And I began to learn more about them and got connected with them. And then last year they reached out to me after hearing me talking about them on a podcast and um, they um, wanted me to work with them and to be like a representative and talk and have more of an, of an official um, relationship with them. So just this week, we, we finalized those plans, and um, they're, in essence, partnering with us with the Dying Out Loud and, and, and promoting each other on each other's websites and conversations, and I'll go to their annual meeting whenever they have it again, that sort of thing. Uh, but essentially, um, they help me um, in my life on my terms. It's, it's, a, it's a process. They help me with the, with the equipment that I need, with how to do it, who... who um, talk through who's going to be there with me, who wants to be involved in that. And um, the, the big thing that that does uh, is that it gives me control. Mm -hmm. And it allows me to be the one that determines how and when I've had enough. And, and that's the key for someone with terminal illnesses who, who are not going to get better. There's no hope of getting better. The idea that the laws that exist would force me to draw my last gasping breath as, as painful or as long as that is, is immoral and hor horrible in my opinion. So um, they give me the control of that. And a good percentage of the people that engage their services never even use them, but they still have the option to do it. And it's, and it's all about control. And that's the key. And this is a part of the overall movement called Dying with Dignity, right? We've seen some bills in various state governments. Um, uh, yes, it's similar to that, but it's different in the sense that those laws are very restrictive um, and they're only available in a handful of states. Okay. Uh, this, this organization doesn't require you to live in a state where there has a death of dignity law. Mm. And it doesn't require any of those narrow parameters like a six-month window of death signed by two doctors which is one of the, 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 the most difficult options there um, that, that, that I have a problem with. Because if I'm six months from death, I'm in a pretty bad shape. Yeah. And that's probably not going to be an option for me. Um, have you received any kind of um, opposition to uh, you talking about the, uh, taking your own life and living life? And well, no, again, the, the critics are probably going to be silent about that because they don't want to offend a dying man or whatever. But um, again, it's, it's the audiences that I do talk to are more secular, obviously. I don't, I don't go into churches and talk about this. They would boo me off the stage. I would love that opportunity. If any of you know of a church that want to bring me in, I would love that because um, I love a good fight. Um, but, but no, I haven't gotten a lot of pushback on that. The, the responses have been overwhelmingly positive, actually. Got it. Well... Todd, do you have anything else to? I I think we covered a lot here. Um, Dave, how how can people reach you? 
I think Maria's posted the links to everything as during the chat going on. Okay. Good about that. But the easiest way to find links to all my stuff, uh, the Twitter and the Facebook and all the things, is my website, DaveOutloud.com, which is easy to remember. And uh, DaveOutloud at gmail.com. Um, I'd love to hear from anybody. Uh, connect with me on Facebook if you want to. Follow the Dying Out Loud page on Facebook. Uh, when we do get going again, hopefully we'll get to reschedule a lot of these things that we had scheduled. Um, what I love a lot and what a lot happened a lot last year is people that I'd gotten to know online um, when we would come to the city and do a meeting there, we'd get to meet them and have a meet and greet. And we get to meet people in person who we'd gotten to know online. I love doing that. <laughs> so we will have the schedule going again. Uh, we had meetings scheduled in Salt Lake City and California and, and Vancouver and Florida um, and then over in Europe. And so um, everyone has said that once travel is allowed again, that we'll reschedule these things. So I should be around for another couple of years. And so I'm planning on getting to these places. So if you're in those places, we'll meet up and you can buy me a bourbon. <laughs> are you going to pull that card? <laughs> oh, yeah. Never, yeah. You're not going to make a dying man buy this drink, are you? <laughs> if you're dying, you don't need your money. <laughs> you should be buying my drink. <laughs> you turn that around, Todd. You're bad. <laughs> well, we've got oh. some uh, questions from the chat. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, the first one we had is from DV, and uh, they ask, what strategies do you uh, recommend to um, recreate from scratch, like a person's community or, or friends? What was, what was the most helpful thing to you to um, rebuilding your community or quote-unquote family? Well, you go door-to-door -door with a pamphlet. That <laughs> I was a Christian, now I'm an atheist. Want to have a drink? Um, no, uh, that was very um, organic, and it's, uh, it's one of the hardest things about our deconversion is finding community. I know that's a real problem. Um, I was lucky in, um, in Nashville. There seemed to be a large number of ex-Christians that found each other. Uh, my first point of contact with finding like-minded people was through the clergy project, and I would reach. I, I met my, my best friend, Cass, that way. I think he's on here. Uh, hey, Cass. Um, and and we, we we were on a board meeting one night, a uh, committee meeting in the clergy project, and we everybody was telling, where are you from? Where are you from? And we realized we lived 30 minutes apart. And so we got together for coffee the next week, and we've been fast friends ever since. So I, I began to meet a few friends through the clergy project. And then online, one of the best things that happened this past year is I was doing these podcasts and shows, is that... Uh, I would be on a show and I'd mention Nashville and somebody would reach out and say, I live in Nashville. Hey, we should get together. And I've met, I have three or four, maybe five, what I consider really good friends now in the past year that I met in person after hearing me on a show and realizing we live in the same community. So I don't think there's a magic formula for finding community. I think you have to be intentional about it. Mm. You have to get online, look for them, um, look, go to meetups, if you're looking for community, they're, they're, the ex-Christian community is growing fast, um, thankfully. And so there are probably people in your neighborhood that, that you could connect with. Um, you just may not know it yet. And so you kind of have to be on the lookout for it. 
So in some sense, you're saying they're not going to find you. You've got to go find them. Yeah, be intentional. Yeah, be intentional about it. I think that's a good word. Kristen is asking, what is the best way to react to someone who has a terminal illness? That it may be down the road a ways yet before they're, they're actually going to die. How do you approach that? What are some of the best words you can say to um, be? Always offer to buy them their drinks, Todd. <laughs> Uh, always. Um, I remember that. I think, I think it depends on the person. Um, I don't think there's a formula. I think you just need to be sensitive to the individual. I'm a person obviously who can joke about this and you don't have to walk on eggshells around me and you know, Oh my God, I said the word death. Uh, he's going to think I'm horrible. And um, I, I, I'd rather just diffuse that right out of the gate, but not everyone is that way. So if you have a friend or a person that you know that's got a terminal illness, you're going to have to be, I think, um, sensitive to how they're dealing with it. Mm -hmm. But the best thing that you can do is be present. Just be available. You don't, have to, you don't have to have the right words. There are no right words. And my friends knew this, and they would say things like, Dave, there are no words. I'm just so sorry. There are no words, and I'm not going to try to make words up to soothe this and make this better. There are no words. This sucks and I hate it, but I'm here with you. And that's the absolute best thing that we can do for another. Yeah, that makes sense. It does, just being there. Be present. Gwen's wanting to know if any Christians ever implied that your illness is because, uh, is it God's way of trying to draw you back to him? Uh, not not if so, and huh? if so, And if so, how did you respond back? Well, if they'd have done that to my face, I'd have said, go fuck yourself. But um, they, uh, oh, shit, what did I do? I left, I left the meeting accident. Where's no, the no, no, you're still here. Oh, you're I hit the wrong button. None to my face. Um, one of the challenges, anybody that would know me well, friends or family, would also know that I have a daughter with stage four cancer. And she's a fervent believer and trusts God and loves Jesus. So anybody in my life that would that would point at me and say, well, God's judging you and you got this because you turned from him would have to then turn around and say, and they can do this. You know, Christians can equivocate and, and, and make anything fit their narrative, but they would have to then turn around and say, well, your daughter actually got cancer because God's testing her or whatever, you know, they, so they wouldn't be able to point to one and ignore the other. Uh, yeah. So I've not had anybody that said that to me directly. Yeah. Um, so what, or what makes you certain that there's no afterlife or are you, or are you certain that there's no afterlife? Uh, I'm not, what I don't like about anything is the idea of certainty. Um, mm -hmm. that, that reeks of dogma and, and I don't like that at all, whether it's secular certainty or Christian certainty or religious right. certainty. I think the reality is we don't know. I don't see any credible evidence for it, so I'm going to assume the position of it's not there. It doesn't make sense to me, the idea of eternity. Um, either a heaven or a hell, I've said before, the idea of eternity in heaven, singing Hosanna around the throne with everybody that I've ever known, is that exhausts me just saying it, much less thinking about it. And I want no part of that. Um, and then the idea of an eternity burning in hell or eternity of dark, none of that just makes sense. 
So I'm inclined to say that, no, I, I think that's a made up religious dogma to keep the sheep in line. Got it. And then um, the last question we have is from Chris. Uh, what's the uh, biggest surprise you've experienced since starting down um, uh, the path? Uh, they specifically say this path, but I'm going to say, what's the biggest surprise you've experienced since you've started um, dying out loud? Hmm. Um, now, see, this is where I'll get emotional. Um, Meeting people like Levi Bullen, met him in Houston at a meetup, he was there to talk, cancer survivor himself, and came out and we became good friends. Just an example like that, and then he came out and hung out at the Beach Week with us, and um, the connection with people that have happened through this that never would have happened if I hadn't got ALS. That's the, the harsh reality. The whole dying out loud thing would have not happened, and I would have just been another Hey, Kimberly Stover. Um, I would have been another ex-Christian pastor. I mean, they're a dime a dozen. And um, I, just getting to do this, I'm, I'm so, uh, it sounds odd, but I'm so thankful to have this platform and this voice at the last stage of my life to get to touch people in a way that's meaningful. And the reactions that I've gotten from people have literally blown my mind. Mm. And, <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> I, I I just wouldn't trade anything for it. That's it. That's the most surprising thing. That's the most important thing I believe in life is is other people, people in your yeah. lives, and that human connection. Yeah. And I wouldn't have gotten to touch all these lives. Um, it's shocking to me that it's happened. I didn't expect it. I wasn't looking for it. But it happened and we started going with it and it just started rolling downhill. And I thought, this is just a mind fuck because I, there are people that needed to talk about this stuff and needed to hear about it. And I was able to connect with them and it's just been a beautiful thing. And I'm thankful for it. I'm not thankful for ALS because that sucks. Uh, I can't Dave. talk my pants anymore, but I, I'm still thankful for this. Dave, have you been able to reach out to your daughters during this time at all? Have, has there been any reconnection with, with your daughters that have rejected you? In the uh, yeah, it's, it's been um, some baby steps. There's a little bit of hope there in connections because um, the ALS kind of changed the nature of things. So they've been a little more open to reconnecting. It hasn't happened on a, on a large scale yet, but the possibility there is, is there and I'm, I'm, I've got a little bit of hope. But even with that, it's just nothing that has become a thing that oh my god it's got to happen i'm i'm kind of like and and again it just it may sound cold or whatever but it's what i had to get to I, i'll take it if it comes but i'm not i'm not hanging my hat on it i'm not desperate for it and i would mm -hmm. love to have it happen but i can't let myself get in the place of saying it's got to happen or it's going to crush me if that makes sense it does it, it's the way that you have to look at it that way or you won't, you won't be able to seize the moments in your life because you'd be focused on, on what you don't have. That's what, that's what happened before I went and rebooted things. Um, and it's, it's, it's not like I don't love them any, any less. It's just that um, 
it's it's a place that I was allowed to get to in my head where I I realized it's something I have no control over and I'm not going to waste my energy on something I can't control. Dave, thanks for being being here tonight and sharing your story. Um, everyone, I want to encourage you when we can get out and travel again and David is traveling around. If he's in your area, make an effort to go meet him in person, take him out, buy him a bourbon for me. <laughs> um, and, and you won't regret it. I promise you. Recovering from religion is a nonprofit organization whose mission it is to provide hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. Hope, healing, and support is waiting for you on our website, recoveringfromreligion.org. There, you can speak or chat with a trained agent who will work with you through your struggles and doubts or to help find resources that may work for you. You can also find local Recovering From Religion support groups in your area for the long-term recovery work. Resources specifically curated for those struggling with doubts, disbelief, and trauma can also be found on the RFR website. To connect with a secular therapist in your area, go to seculartherapy.org and create an account. If you'd like to support the work that RFR does, you can donate or sign up as a volunteer on the Recovering From Religion website. It's also a big help subscribing to the RFR YouTube channel, our blog, or following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Questions, comments, and suggestions can be emailed to us at rfrx at recoveringfromreligion.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll be with us next time on the Recovering From Religion podcast.